welcome all again to yet another episode of our podcast series on the subject of specialist bar associations. My name is Ali Ziad. I am a practicing barrister and I'm very pleased to be joined by another fantastic guest today. We turn today to the Sports Law Bar Association and I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for the show that's here to represent the association, Susan Ahern, Barrister at Law, the chair of the association, no less. Susan is a practicing barrister and she was called to the bar in 1998. She is an accredited mediator and arbitrator and has a wealth of experience in this area of the law, such as being an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport since 2018, being an independent non-executive director of Cycling Ireland and RTE, and indeed being an arbitrator at the Olympics in Tokyo in 2021 and being the independent deputy chairperson of the appeals body of the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board since 2021. The impressive list uh, of your credentials, Susan, really uh, does go on. But for today's purposes, I think I've highlighted uh, some of the most important for today's show. And uh, it is a very clear illustration of your expertise in this area. And it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show. Ali, thank you so much. I'm delighted to to be here. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Well, the first question, Susan, is focused on you and your journey to the very unique area of sports law. Well, I suppose it's been a long and winding journey, Ali. I don't think uh, anyone who has, has spent, uh, you know, 30 years almost in working has a, a linear journey. But for me, with sport, I started out as a, an athlete. I was a hurdler. Um, but then I became a volleyball player and I played volleyball for Ireland. And so that led me into, um, I suppose, a journey of, um, of governance. You, you know, when you're, when you're studying law, you get tapped on the shoulder to write rules. And that's what started my journey into um, the arena of sports administration. Um, and skipping on many, many years, um, I ultimately spent um, 15 years with World Rugby, uh, where I was uh, general counsel um, and also dealt with all of the discipline um, in that international federation, which is the only international sports federation that's based in Ireland. Um, and so moving on again, I again came back to uh, the bar in, in 2016 um, to carve out a, a practice in sports law regulation and also arbitration. Wow, Susan. So it's really from the the actual practical side of the area that you've come to the legal side of it. That's right. I suppose my legal education was in parallel with all of that. I don't know when I started in Trinity that I thought I was going to end up as a sports lawyer. In fact, sports law didn't exist as a discipline um, back when I when I was studying and, and starting out my career. And so I suppose when I found myself being a sports lawyer, it was as a lawyer in sport. And, 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 and during that time, sports law as a practice and a discipline began to evolve. And I think when you start to see um, topics being put on the curriculum of universities, well, then you know you're, it, is, it is an area of practice that is developing. And you, know, you could see that in you know, Trinity and, and UL and UCD. Um, have courses and or included as part of of, of module selection. Um, and the Law Society has also run um, a very successfully for many years the um, diploma in sports law, uh, which I and other members of the Sports Law Bar Association have, have lectured on. Following on from that, Susan, it, it would appear that sports law, although a speciality, is incredibly general 
So in that regard, what does sports law cover from a legal perspective? Ali, how much time do you have? Uh, I, I think you've, you've hit the, the nail on the head. Um, I would say um, when I describe myself as a, a sports lawyer, I'm really a specialist generalist because sports law is an umbrella term for effectively any part of the business and practice of sport uh, that can touch on the law. And so you have everything from the, let's starting with the on-field, um, the rules, the regulations, the on-field discipline, everything that happens in a playing enclosure from advertising, TV, and so on. Uh, you have employees and the environment in which they work. And then you have the whole volunteer space as well. Um, and depending on whether the sport is you know, a grassroots sport or it's a professional sport, you have different issues and you have different levels of complexity. Um, and then the, one of the areas that's the most interesting to me is how the uh, national governing bodies at you know, the local level interact with their European confederations and indeed their international federations. Because ultimately, even though sport is funded on a national basis in Ireland, the individual sports have to follow the rules and are accountable to their international federations uh, where they have an international federation. Um, and that is, you know, can be a, a complex but really interesting area and, and can lead to a lot of disputes. I can imagine. And one other question that we, we have for you, Susan, is in relation to the topics, some uh, relevant and interesting topics that have arisen in this area of the law. Well, I think looking at, you look at, open your newspaper any day of the week and you're going to see the topics that arise and emerge in sport. So you have the regular everyday topics, uh, the meat and drink, as it were, of, of sport, which is the on-field. And you'll have, if it's a team sport, be it rugby or be it soccer or be it GAA, you know, you're going to have the, the on-field clashes, how they're dealt with, how the disciplinary process flows through. Um, you may have issues around um, integrity matters, uh, you know, people tweeting inappropriately or uh, people breaching other rules that they that they shouldn't. So you have that aspect of it. And then you can move on, you know, the bigger topics. I'm talking about the more weighty topics that are affecting sport as a whole and are not specific to any one sport. And I think there I would call out issues like transgender in sport. That is a really big topic um, and I recall dealing with it in a rugby context or at first emerging about 10 or more years ago where we tried to understand how it could work within that particular sport and craft rules that were not overly complex but also really talking about procedures and engaging with the medical profession to try and ensure that we understood what the, the, the groundworks were um, what rules ought to be put in place, bearing in mind that the International Olympic Committee was also working on the same topic. And so that's that was then. And then this is now where it is part of everyday parlance, where it is, um, you know, there has been really good integration in so many sports um, where, you know, transgender um, individuals are, are made to feel welcome. But equally, the debate rages with regard to competition um, where you're dealing with transgender women. And I think that is, you know, a very a topic that is going to, uh, you know, form a, a considerable part of the discussion going forward. And, and hopefully that's something that we will um, have a, a, a seminar on at some at some point. The other, I suppose, key topics, I would say, is anti-doping. That's it's been there forever. It's not going to leave. Uh, you know, I just recently um, 
um, sat as a sole arbitrator um, in a doping case in, 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 a, in a sport um, outside of this jurisdiction. It is not going away. The complexity is, is increasing and, and we've had to deal with you know, major scandals, the fallout of which is, is, is still occurring. And then I think you have general integrity issues. You've got corruption in sports, you've got match fixing. Some sports are more susceptible to it than others, like cricket and tennis, just because of the individual nature uh, and control that the individual athletes can have over those uh, particular sports. Um, and then I think you can you can look to human rights playing a bigger part, especially where you're dealing with major events and the construction of stadia and so on. And now we also have um, issues dealing with the, the war um, in, in the Ukraine and the consequences of that um, in sport. Susan, that's a, a, just an absolutely incredibly interesting area. I can I can see the the, the issues are, in, are very intriguing and at the very foreface of, of of not only the law, but also uh, politics and uh, social policy, uh, a recurring question that we've had on this uh, on this show for our guests has been in relation to the impact of technology and and COVID nineteen on the particular area of law, and I wonder in that regard has there been a major impact on sports law by those issues? If I start with COVID, I think the first thing I have to do is call out how fantastic the Irish government has been in supporting sport in Ireland, um, you know, to enable it to get through uh, the COVID period. If they hadn't come in and they hadn't um, financially supported the national governing bodies, then we would we would have lost many of them and many people would have lost their jobs. So I think we have to call that out as being, you know, they stepped in and, 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 and held the waters back as it were. Um, COVID has had consequences on leagues and championships. They had to be truncated. They had, some were not held. Arising from that, there were issues as to, well, who is lead, who is leading, who, who, who wins, as it were, versus who comes second. Um, and a lot of the time that is because those rankings have implications for who moves on to participate in European competition. Um, and I've certainly dealt with one of those um, cases myself, myself in an arbitration context. Um, you also have contractual breaches, well, con- contractual um, non-delivery under contracts because of um, of COVID and whether that constituted a force majeure event or not. So there's those commercial COVID-related um, uh, discussions that will be will be going on, and they, you know, they will play out over the next um, period of, of of time. But I think on the sports side, people have been as practical as they can be because they had to, and the fact that everyone was in the same situation made it somewhat easier and certainly more um, empathetic. I think on the technology front, the biggest um, uh, changes um, are are in in technology, um, and that really relates to how the sport is displayed to the public. Television, we're moving really away from linear broadcast television, you're moving into a digital space. Uh, we're seeing the traditional broadcasters are now vying with streaming services to get access to sports television rights. You know, the Scandinavians now have the rights to the Irish soccer and uh, rights. It's, you know, it's who would have thought three or four years ago that that would be the situation, uh, but it is. And so I think you have, that's an enormous area of development and so is social media. And what social media is doing is it's allowing athletes to have a direct voice. They have their own channels of communication. They're not relying on their club or their team or their national federation. They have their own voice. And I think that's 
you're starting to see the impact of that in terms of how athletes are positioning themselves. I'm really struck by how how interesting this area of the law is, and I'm sure many of the listeners will be very intrigued to even see a podcast focusing on the area of sports law. And it, it, it really, although this podcast is to be is only really expected to be a short podcast, it's really clear to me that this 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 discussion could go on for quite some time in relation to the very intriguing areas and the multiple different areas that intersect with this this area of the law. Well, Ali, I'm sure one of my colleagues from the Sports Law Bar will be happy to do a part two of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we may look into that, Susan. We may look into that. But you mentioned earlier on about the fact that uh, sports law wasn't an area which was in the curriculum when you were starting off in it. That's right. And now it has come into the curriculum. Has there been a, a growth in texts on the area of sports law? Not really, I would say. There is one, I would say, the definitive Bible, and that is um, Taylor and Lewis, and they just released their fourth edition uh, last year. And it's so heavy, uh, you almost, you know, you need a special bag to carry it around, and it's it's uh, at least a thousand pages, It's if not, not more. And even if you see the evolution of that book, because I remember the first edition, which was, you know, written by Taylor and Lewis, it, there must be about 50 contributors now. And what they've done is they've broken it down into specialist sections and areas and they've taken uh, or they've offered the opportunity to um, lawyers, both in-house and in law firms and barristers to contribute based on their experience. So it's a real, it's a very fresh and up-to-date view. Um, I would say it's obviously an English focus. Um, and I think there is a dearth of... Um, texts in Ireland you know uh, Laura Donnelly has produced one um, and there's a, a, a another older text um, but but they're not up to date and I think that just shows you how quickly the area of sports law moves and because it's so broad that it's almost impossible for one or two people to write a text it needs almost to be that contribution um, so yeah maybe there's a gap there for for a piece of work to be done and the final question then in, in relation to this very interesting area of the law is how EU law interacts with it. And that's a question that has come up many times with our, our previous guests on the show, uh, because EU law has proliferated, it appears to, to any lawyer would know that if they had practiced in a particular area, that EU law has started to creep in. And has is that the case in, in sports law or is it more... A, situation where it's actually international rules which govern well I, th- I think the answer to that is it it, de- it depends um, but certainly EU law is placing itself firmly uh, in the sporting arena it has decided that sport is an economic activity and so therefore the economic uh, rules apply to sport in the same way that it does to car manufacturing or widget making so the same applies I, I think in in practical terms um, it really affects the international federations more than it affects the national governing bodies. So you, you you tend to see the interaction occurs at that level. And they tend to be um, primarily in the um, competition and the human rights space. So if I can give you an example um, in terms of competition, international federations are monopolies in relation to their own individual sport. They control the calendar. They decide uh, who... Their members are in terms of national federations. They decide entry into their competitions and so on and so forth. And where one of the main battlegrounds has been in recent years is in relation to uh, the calendar. 
you see in sports like uh, ice skating and in sports like swimming, where there have been um, challenges before the European Commission, um, third party promoters have wanted to come in and set up a competition and give access to that competition to the international athletes. Um, where there would be prize money and the athletes would have the opportunity of, of, of earning that money. Um, the two federations that I mentioned um, didn't permit the third party promoters to have the competitions that they wanted to and therefore there were challenges taken by, by the athletes. Um, and ultimately in both cases um, they were required, they made progressive steps to change their rules but ultimately there were findings by the um, European Commission that they had been too rigid and that needed to be opened out. Um, so even before those decisions came to a final conclusion, other international federations were completely aware of the situation and therefore were adjusting their rules and adjusting the manner in which um, uh, their, calen their calendars were affected and how they processed third parties who wanted to hold independent competitions. So that really became, and quite some time ago now, became part of the essential uh, assessment of, a, of an in-house lawyer or, or an advisor in, in the sporting uh, arena. The other one I mentioned was um, human rights and I suppose the, the main case there really is the Claudia Peckstein case where she went ultimately after about 10 years following her CAS decision she ended up in the European Court of Human Rights where if there was a finding made she wanted her hearing to be held in public. Um, that opportunity didn't exist in a way that it probably ought to have um, and there was a pronouncement in relation to the right to hold, uh, to have a, a, a hearing held in public if the athlete uh, wishes it. Um, and so the rules of the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, were, were adjusted slightly, um, but it didn't overturn the, the previous uh, decisions. So that's just two examples of where EU law directly affects sport. I'm sure there could be in an infinite, num infinite number yes. of, uh, of other examples, but we must move on to the Final segment of the show, which relates to the association itself. As I already mentioned, Susan is the chair of the association. So we are very uh, intrigued to know what this association is up to. And But first, Susan, can you tell us why the SLBA was set up? The SLBA was set up um, by, by two colleagues. Uh, not myself, I have to say, although I, I was co-opted onto the first um, committee. Um, but Tim O'Connor and um, Rob McTiernan, they, they established it uh, and had the good fortune and foresight to select Judge David Barnival um, and also Paul McGarry um, SC as their uh, first chair and, and vice chair. Um, and so really it kind of evolved from there. And the objective was to introduce sports law as not just a discipline, but as a real and viable practice area. And I mentioned previously, you know, it's on the curricula in many universities. There are a lot of um, people, including colleagues who've done master's degrees um, in sports law. Um, and so it's about not just sharing that sports law exists, but how can you make it a, a part of your practice? And what are the ways that you can channel your way into sport? Because I think that's one of the most difficult things to do. How do you how do you get into this area? That's the question that I'm, I'm always asked. So the sports law bar was set up to try and break down some of those barriers um, to try and create a networking environment between um, the members of the sports law bar and the sports industry itself. Um, because that's one of the things that we do um, is we try to engage directly with the sports, get behind the issues that they have, bring the 
in-house lawyers, uh, bring the relevant subject matter experts on whatever topic it is that we're discussing and bring them in and let them tell us because there is nobody better than somebody who's in the sport to communicate what they're doing, what's going on. Because I can tell you they are always four or five steps ahead. In that regard, anyone who might be interested in getting involved might be more than of the view that they'd like to get involved via one of the events that may or may not be held by the association. So in that regard, what's on the agenda? Well, we've just um, done a couple of events just in the last number of weeks. Um, you know, it's like the buses, uh, you know, n- n- none come and then two or three come at the same at the same time. So we did a, a joint uh, webinar with the uh, Arbitration and ADUR Committee on uh, Mediation and Sport, uh, where we spoke with uh, two mediators, one from the UK, one from Ireland, who've you know, been in the room, been the mediator, uh, done the handholding, got the solution. Um, and, and I think that was really important because that was an insight into something that you, it's not going to be published. You might ultimately hear, you may never hear that there was an issue. And if you do, um, you may hear the outcome, but you have no idea how, how it tra- transitioned. So I think that was really helpful insight. Um, and the second um, seminar that we did um, focused on horse racing regulation. Uh, and we were lucky to have um, His Honour um, Judge Tony Hunt um, come in and also clean a guy who is the um, acting uh, CEO um, of the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. And they came in and took us through in lightning speed terms, the whole uh, disciplinary process that they engage in. So that's up on the um, Sports Law Bar website and the uh, the bar as well. So those that's just a little taster. Um, we have done, every December, we do a our annual conference. Um, it's going to be the 3rd of December this year. Um, we're still working on the topics, but we we always have um, international speakers um, come in and talk about um, their experience, uh, whether it's a sitting on the judicial side or whether it's in the sport itself. Um, we've also focused on areas like the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and we had uh, Matthew Reeve, the Secretary General um, of the CAS, come a couple of years ago and, and speak about, about the CAS and, and talk about its work um, its aspirations, the t- you know the type of cases that it it deals with. Um, so you see, there's a bit of a a trend and a theme to get really stuck in and be not so much theoretical but, but more pragmatic because I think that reflects what sport is. Um, sport doesn't really have time if it can avoid it to get bogged down in litigation. So the key thing is to have good advice um, at the right time and by keeping colleagues um, up to speed on the issues in question, it gives them the best opportunity to become those advisors. Fantastic, Susan. It feels a shame to end the, the conversation. However, the conversation has to come to an end, unfortunately. And the final question is how people get involved with the SLBA. You mentioned uh, the website, uh, and I'm sure that will be one port of call. Um, would it be the primary port of call? Or are there others? It, it is, Ali, yes. It's the primary port of call that's uh, that will channel you into both our secretary um, and to um, the, the fantastic support staff that we have um, in, in the bar. Uh, I'm not going to start naming names because they're, they've all been absolutely amazing and we couldn't um, run the show, as it were, without, without their collective um, um, support. And that's been really, particularly during COVID, when we had to move everything online. So I'd like to, to, to congratulate them on the fantastic work that they've done. So I think, yes, yeah, so, you know, come to a seminar, go on the website, 
um, check us out. You know, our, our the committee names are all up there. All of our our, our emails are, are on the the bar. Um, and we're amenable and open and delighted to welcome members. Um, and so as particularly for those who are in first year and second year um, of their practice, um, it, membership is free. Um, and then that also um, gives you the opportunity to um, come to the um, December uh, conference and, and to meet and, and greet uh, members of the sporting community. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. I'd like to thank the Bar of Ireland for supporting the production of this podcast series. I'd also like to thank Andrew Bradley for all his work behind the scenes. And last, but certainly not least, I'd like to extend my sincere gratitude to you, Susan, for taking time out of your uh, busy schedule for joining us uh, today. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Ali, thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. If you'd like to contact the show or any of our guests, please visit the Law Library website at www.lawlibrary.ie. And if you would like to contact the Sports Bar Association, please visit its website at www.slba.ie. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes where we will hear from representatives from some of the other specialist bar associations, which I'm sure will be an interesting and intriguing listen. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Agus Slongafol.